Turn with me to the book of Ephesians as we start a study of this book. Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2 today. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, which will serve as an introduction of this book for us. Before we go to God's Word, let's go to Him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Word, we are reminded over and over in the words that we've sung this morning, the words that we have recited together, the words that we've heard read, that You are God that we are in desperate need of you. So as we open your word, that does not change. In fact, as we read your word, we are reminded evermore that we are incapable of anything, even basic understanding, without you. So Lord, we pray that you would open your word to us, that we might follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you remember, there are a few of us here that were around in our first days as Redeemer Community Church. We first met for worship in January of 2015. That seems long ago, and then at the same time it doesn't. Ephesians was the first book that we went through together as a church almost eight years ago. And in many ways, it was a great first book for us to go through together as a church. Many of the battle cries of the Reformation are found here in this book. And Reformed churches today regularly refer to the opening chapters of Ephesians and helping newly Reformed believers understand the doctrines of grace. So it's a great book for that. But as a former church plant and now a new budding church, there is much more for us to look back on with gratitude and to look forward with some amount of excitement as well, even mixed with some amount of warning for us as a new church. As the Apostle Paul traveled the Asia Minor countryside and he was planting churches, in many ways, he saw those churches as like his own children. And you read his works, you read that sort, that sort of language. It's just littered throughout as he loved those churches like his own children. And we do this with our own children, right? We, we want what's best for them. At the same time, we also want to steer them away from potential dangers. We see the apostle doing that as we study this book. As we study, we're going to see the encouragement that he has for the church in the form of sound doctrine, which is what we'll, we'll have as we go through it. We see a pastor working through divisions in his church, calling them to come together under one head, Jesus Christ. We see fresh calls to obedience in the areas of life, including things like marriage and family. And so as we look at this brief introduction, what I want to do for us is take us back to the book of Acts and kind of some of the formational times of this church there in Ephesus and us to understand Paul's heart that he had for the church. Ultimately, it's the heart of God for his bride, the ones whom he sent his only son for. So as we consider, uh, as we consider our passage today, we'll look at it in three main points, the apostles' authority, the Ephesians' faithfulness, and then the Lord's 
grace and peace. And so with that, let's look together at the text, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Ephesians 1, 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So just a little bit uh, of introduction, a little bit of uh, introduction concerning the city of Ephesus and kind of some of the cultural distinctives there. Uh, it was a city in the west coast of Turkey, which is modern-day Turkey, and its history had many ups and downs until it was finally abandoned sometime in the 15th century. Uh, during the time of Roman occupation is when Ephesus saw its greatest prosperity, and this just happens to be when the church was being planted there and when the church was there in Ephesus as well. As the church moved west toward Europe, which is what it did in its history, it made sense that Ephesus would eventually be visited by one of the apostles, which is exactly what happened. It was a natural harbor and center of trade there in the Mediterranean. So Paul traveled there around A.D. 52, and he lived there a few years. And this is when he planted the church of Ephesus, which is widely considered one of the greatest churches of the early years of the Christian church, and it served as a jumping point off for many other church plants in that area. Paul likely wrote this letter to the church there in Ephesus around A.D. 62, which is when he would have been in prison in Rome. Ephesus, as a city, was also home to the great temple of Artemis. And if you were ever like me and, and reading those world book encyclopedias and just fascinated with some of the articles in it as a kid and just showing a little bit of my nerdiness, I always drifted towards the seven wonders of the ancient world, right? I don't know if you ever read about those. And the Temple of Artemis was one of those. It was found in this city of Ephesus. Artemis, or Diana for the Roman pagans, was the goddess of hunting and the moon and bears and a few other things. And if you read about the worship of Artemis, you can read some quite interesting things that I didn't really want to discuss here in a mixed group. And so it's easy for us to to read these sorts of things about the goddess of bears and moons and think, wow, they really did some weird stuff back then. And while that may be true, we need to make sure and stand by the fact that anyone at all, anyone who doesn't worship Jesus Christ as Lord is worshiping an idol and a false god that might as well be the goddess of bears. It doesn't matter. If they're not Jesus, it's not the real one. It may not have a fancy ancient wonder built in its name, but rest assured that a false god by any name is just as deadly to the souls of the lost. So as we talk about Paul's time in Ephesus, as we intro this book, I want to place ourselves there. We're going to look at Acts several times this morning to look there. And this is where the Lord would have his kingdom come. And for us 
Today, we still stand in this place in Murray, Kentucky, where the Lord would still have his kingdom come. And so this this uh, book is very helpful for us in seeing that. So that brings us to the first point, the apostle's authority. Look with me again at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul announces himself, as was the custom in the letters of that day. He gives his title an apostle of Christ Jesus. This is something that we've talked about quite a bit before as we've worked through Pauline epistles several times over the course of the history of this church, but it always bears repeating. Always bears repeating, particularly understanding the history of this particular building that used to be called an apostle training center. The apostles were a select group of men chosen by the Lord Jesus himself to start the work of the church and to bring about a new revelation of the New Testament, which was being formed in those days. This office today, and since this time of the early church, is a closed office for the reason that I mentioned. They were picked by our Lord Jesus personally, including Paul on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9 and has direct ties to the revelation of Scripture, meaning that these men were actually putting down the words of God on paper that we have today. These things aren't happening any longer, so there's no longer need for these men called apostles. The office of apostle carried with it authority. Jesus' authority on earth was given to these men as they guided the church, as they wrote inspired words for the church to hear, to understand, to live by. Paul wasn't simply writing to the Ephesians as a friend or even as their pastor. He was those things, absolutely. But he was writing as an apostle, someone who had authority. We see this demonstrated in Acts chapter 19. We're going to be turning there in a little bit and reading from there, but I'll just mention it for now. Paul meets the first disciples there in Ephesus. These men had apparently heard of Jesus and had believed in him, but had not been baptized yet. And so Paul ministers baptism to them. The Holy Spirit descends on them, similar to what happened at the day of Pentecost. And if you continue and you look at verse 11 of chapter 19... Luke writes this, he says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. This isn't just some traveling revivalist or teacher, but an apostle of God. An apostle of God. He says that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He wasn't put there by men. He was put there by the Lord Jesus himself. And so what does this mean for us? Well, because of Paul's authority and this book's place among the revelation of God, we find it in the scripture. We are under its authority and what it says is true. What it says is absolutely true. What it commands, we ought to do. They're not just suggestions. These are things that are commanded of us. And so as we wade through this first chapter, which is very dense, we read about God's plan of redemption and how it stretched all the way back to the foundations of the earth. We read that in verse 4. 
Though we'd like our, to have our own hand and our own destinies, we read that all along that it was God who predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purposes of His will. Verse 5. Though we'd like to think that sin doesn't have much of a stranglehold on the life of an unbeliever and that people are basically good, we read that we are dead in our trespasses and sins and that we have no hope outside the rich mercy and great love of God the Father. Though we'd like to save ourselves and somehow earn God's favor by being better than the people that are around us, we read that it's by grace that we have been saved, through faith, not of ourselves. Why? So that no one can boast. Though we'd like to be rugged individual Christians who worship God in our own way, who do church in our own way, by ourselves, we read that we are a whole body that is joined together and built up in love. Kids would probably like to run their households too, right? Wives would like to run their households, run their husbands. Husbands would like to do nothing at all. But we read that children should obey their parents in the Lord. That wives should submit to their husbands. And that husbands should love their wives like Christ loved the church. We'd love things to be on our own terms. But brothers and sisters in Christ, they're not. The Lord of glory... Jesus Christ sets the terms, and he's always right, and he's always good. We do well, brothers and sisters, to put ourselves under the submission of the words of this book. That brings us to the second point, the Ephesians' faithfulness. He goes on in his introduction to the saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So what was going on? This makes me think. You know, what was going on in, in, in Ephesus in those days that might shape Paul's words that he had here for the believers to call them faithful? Again, let's look at Acts chapter 19. We see this interesting story regarding the city of Ephesus and their god Artemis. So turn there to Acts chapter 19. Paul had been preaching the gospel in this area. People were being converted in large numbers. And the pagans in the area took notice, and they were not happy. So I'm going to read, starting at verse 21, and I'm going to read this story that happened in the city of Ephesus. Acts chapter 19, starting at 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way is is uh, another word for, for Christians. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the works, workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be deposed from her magnificence. 
she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were outraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had even come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours, this crowd shouted the same thing over and over. This must have been an incredible scene to behold. So imagine the city of Ephesus, right? You had this whole silversmith's guild that has risen up this kind of thing because no one's buying silver Artemises anymore because they're all worshiping the Lord Jesus. And so they're upset, and so they kind of raise up this confusion in town So much so that for two hours, people are shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Imagine doing the work of ministry there in Ephesus after this. It's obvious that Christianity had some huge barriers in Ephesus. And though cooler heads eventually prevail in this situation, as you read on, this would eventually lead to the murder of many Christians in the days of the early church, as paganism could not stand the fact that Jesus was Lord. So with that, Paul's greeting to the church indicates that though there was difficulty in Ephesus for these early Christians, these men and women were remaining faithful to their Lord, who was and is above Artemis or Diana or whatever else other gods that are just simply made with hands. The temple of Artemis is now a remnant and the Lord of the Lord Jesus still lives. The people of Ephesus remained faithful at least for a time. So what about for us? I don't really think that the city of Murray will stand around shouting about how great their idols are for 2 hours. But they will as Paul tells Timothy not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. What are we to do in response to this? It would be really easy to want to wander off into myths as well because that's where everyone's going, right? If there was an entire theater full of people shouting the same thing for two hours, you might think, well, that's where business is. But what are we to do in response as those others wander off into myths? We remain faithful. We remain faithful to the Scripture. We preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We preach the name that is unlike any other name, the only name under heaven by which men and women can be saved. Brothers and sisters, we have to be faithful to the word 
of truth. And then we let God sort out the rest. Our purpose, even as we think, consider this for all these years later as a church, our purpose remains unchanged. If we want to be a church that people will look to for sound teaching and for answers to tough questions, then we cannot shrink back preaching Jesus Christ. And this is not an easy task. And this brings us to the next part of Paul's intro, the Lord's grace and peace. Look with me at verse 2 of Ephesians 1 again. Grace to you and and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is a word that is thrown around quite a bit in Christian circles. It's in a lot of Christian music today that is hardly Christian. And so it's kind of hard. To, you know, when we think of the grace of God, it's a word that really is almost overused. And people confuse it with things like forgiveness and mercy and there's all this other thing. It kind of is a catch-all word. But grace, simply put, is God's unmerited favor. It's not like bonus points on a test, but it's everything that we need. When we consider the grace of God, it's how we're able to get up in the morning. It's how we're able to come and worship. It's how we're able to open the book and understand the things that He's given us. It is His favor resting on us because of the work of Jesus Christ. And without it, we have no other hope. We have nothing in and of ourselves. We can't drum up enough and then God kind of tops us off. The grace of God is all that we have. Paul's pronouncement of grace and peace upon the church of Ephesus is his standard greeting. You see this several times, but it's a greeting that understands that this church is in desperate need of God's grace for sustenance and survival. As Paul neared the time when he would travel back to Jerusalem, we read here there in Acts 19 that he was headed toward Jerusalem. Right, But he had to stop and he dealt with the Ephesian church for some time. As he was going to head back to Jerusalem, he gathered the Ephesian elders one last time and he spoke with them and he prayed with them. So let's look at Acts chapter 20. Acts 20, 28 through 32. And his, his message there to the elders is actually more than half of that chapter. I encourage you to, to read and study that on your own. But we're going to be looking at 28 through 32. His message to these elders as he's getting ready to leave, knowing that he probably won't see them again. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend, I commend you to God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who were sanctified. The word of his grace, which is able to build you up, because this building up is exactly what we need. 
The word of His grace isn't always an easy word by any stretch of the imagination. In the book of the in the book of Ephesians, we we are to be imitators of God. We are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us to be a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. This is a word that, if followed, will indeed build us up as a church. It is for our good, for His glory. But it's not always easy. It requires commitment. It requires diligence. He says that we are to walk as children of the light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Not in order to earn our salvation, but so that we can walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Ephesus must have done great for a while. They probably stood strong as a people who worshiped God alone and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ like any church should do and wants to do. But at some time in their history, they began to sink in their faithfulness and their command to walk in love. And it drew the attention of the one who holds all churches in his hands, our Lord Jesus. And in the book of the Revelation, he warns this church. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. And we have this this letter to the church of Ephesus. I'm going to read verses 2 through 5 of Revelation chapter 2. And this is the same church that Paul planted, that he loved and cared for, that he met with those elders. And this is our Lord Jesus speaking to this church. Revelation 2 verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how... You cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and that you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works that you did at first. If not... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Sadly, we know how the story ends. If you go and to look up the church of Ephesus today, you won't find it at all. We don't know exactly when this church folded, but we do know that they aren't there today. Their lampstand was removed. They did not repent. So brothers and sisters, what about for us as we come to God's Word, as we come to the book of Ephesians and as we begin our study in it? First of all, if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, the word for you is the same one that Jesus gave to the church of Ephesus in that day. Repent, turn away from your sin that separates you from God and turn to Jesus, your only hope for salvation. Without Jesus, you face God the Father on your own, and he hates sin. The scriptures say that you need only call upon the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved. Call upon his name today. But for those of us in the church, the word here is very much the same for us as well. We don't need to repent in order to be saved. We don't need any more saving. But we need to repent of any apathy, any lack of love, anything that would seek that we would seek to do alone 
without the grace of our Lord because we cannot do it alone. And even in a situation that others need help, we need to be the ones who are there beside them, walking with them. We need the sovereign Lord of glory before us, doing the work in our hearts and doing the work in the world around us as we minister to this community. So my challenge as we go through this book, is that as we trek through this book once again, as we minister to this community, as we continue our ministry in this community, is that we submit to the authority of this book and to the God who wrote it, and that as we stand in humble reliance upon his grace and peace in our lives. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we consider the life of that church, how they were planted and cared for, and as eventually they did not repent and their lampstand was taken away, Lord, help us to consider this warning for ourselves. To not lean upon our own understanding or any sort of supposed success that we think that we might have had on our own, but to continue to be faithful in those things that you have called us to do, to continue to preach the gospel, to continue to obey your word, to continue to lead people to the truth. Lord, we pray for your grace and peace as we minister here in this community, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me as we sing our response to God's word.